Lumos. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Forbidden Forest. A lot of stuff happens in this chapter, so the synopsis is going to be a bit longer than usual, but I'll give it a shot. So when we begin, Professor McGonagall gives Harry, Malfoy, Hermione, and Neville, who was trying to warn them about Malfoy following them to the tower, detention, and takes 150 house points from Gryffindor. The entire school except Slytherin is livid at the four of them because Slytherin House's victory in the cup is now all but assured. Later on, Harry overhears Quirrell whimpering and pleading with someone in an empty classroom. Harry assumes that it's Snape, and he tells Ron and Hermione, despite the trio now believing that Snape knows how to get to the stone, however, they are too afraid of getting in more trouble to do anything about it. Harry, Hermione, Neville, and Malfoy all have detention scheduled in the middle of the night. They find out that they are going to be going into the Forbidden Forest with Hagrid to find out whatever creature has been killing unicorns. On the way, they come across Ronan and Bane, two centaurs, who don't give them any useful information but do tell them that, quote, Mars is bright tonight, unquote. Eventually, they come across a dead unicorn and a slithering, hooded figure drinking its blood. When the figure turns toward Harry, his scar burns with pain. Ferenzi, another centaur, rescues Harry and puts him on his back. Ferenzi tells him that unicorn blood can be used to prolong one's life, but curses the drinker with eternal misfortune. During their conversation, Harry realizes the creature he saw must have been Voldemort. The trio come to the conclusion that Snape is trying to steal the stone for Voldemort so that Voldemort can finally return to life. When Harry goes to bed, he finds his invisibility cloak returned, with a note that reads, Just in case. My first thought when going into this chapter is, what sort of a detention is this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, right? It's, it's really insane. Dangerous. It's so dangerous. And even later on in The Deathly Hallows and uh, other books previously, when they all have horrible detentions, nothing is actually as dangerous as this. Yeah, I think with the exception of the punishments that the Caros inflict on students in Book right, 7, because right. like, they're literally torturing them. Right, but just as a detention, it's insane. And they're like, okay, just go with Hagrid, and um, you'll be fine. Yeah, just wander into this forest full of incredibly dangerous creatures, such as man-sized spiders and werewolves, and who knows what else. With 11-year-olds, and then split yeah, up. And they're 11, and they're just... And Hagrid is like, okay, two of you come with me, and two of you can go with my boarhound. Yeah. And that's going to be enough protection. Right. And now... <laughs> it's ridiculous. So... I mean, I guess we're assuming that since McGonagall gave him detention that I don't know how much she condoned of this, how much she knew exactly what they were doing, or if she just said they should go do an errand in the forest. Like, I don't know if she knew exactly the extent. My thinking on this is probably something along the lines of McGonagall uh, is like, oh, I have to give them detention. What should I do? And she's brainstorming. And then at some point, maybe like Hagrid comes up to her and says, why don't, why don't you have them do a job for me? I need this thing done. I need to go and find out what's been killing the unicorns anyway. So why don't they come with me and that will be their detention. Interesting. So, but do you think that McGonagall knows what Hagrid No, I don't did? think Hagrid would tell her. I don't think he would out them. I, I think he would just, he would, he would say everything except the, like, I feel bad because it's my fault that they're mm -hmm. in trouble. I feel like he would just say, oh, hey, professor, I have this job that I need done. Mm -hmm. And like, it would be cool if you had some, if there are any kids that need detention, 
uh, just send them out my way and <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do it together. I don't know. It's pretty weird, but I guess, I mean, I guess neither of them knew exactly what was in the forest, which we'll all get to soon. Mm-hmm. So they, no one could have known how dangerous it really was, but still, you know, clearly something very scary was killing unicorns. So yeah. it doesn't seem like a normal detention also like how could they help like they're 11 how can they help (laughs) they're just like being like led along to be scared yeah it's it's pretty odd i'm I'm not really a huge fan of this system (laughs) of punishment but obviously it worked out i mean except for the fact that they're all terrified of the forest now yeah and i mean for good reason but so i guess backing up to what happens at the beginning of the chapter um they lose 150 house points and that hits harry really hard because he was a beloved famous quidditch star and now he's totally disliked um everyone's annoyed at him mm-hmm. even hufflepuff and ravenclaw and not just gryffindor because nobody wants slytherin to win the cup because yeah, slytherin's won for the past like seven years running or something so everyone's sick of slytherin yeah now harry's like i'm not gonna do anything i'm not gonna get into trouble he's not gonna poke into things even though they're he- hearing these rumors or making up rumors themselves about snape they're just not going to investigate any further because they're so worried yeah at one point ron suggests that they go to dumbledore with the information they have about quirrell's um the you know the conversation that harry overheard between quirrell and someone but harry argues quite vehemently that they don't have any evidence to give to dumbledore so there's no point all he's going to do is like berate them for meddling and maybe even punish them more and harry doesn't want to get punished more in the synopsis, we um, went over the basics of the chapter and what Ferenzi tells Harry about drinking unicorn's blood. But why don't you uh, read this quote that he says to Harry when he's explaining it? Right. So in context, this is um, Ferenzi explaining why someone would kill and drink the blood of a unicorn. I mean, in mythology, they are these pure, innocent creatures, um, very powerfully magical, very sort of mystical almost. And they're a symbol of all that is good and pure and wholesome in the world. And so to kill something like that is uh, an incredible atrocity. And Ferenzi says, It is a monstrous thing to slay a unicorn. Only one who has nothing to lose and everything to gain would commit such a crime. It will keep you alive even if you are an inch from death but at a terrible price. You will have but a half-life, a cursed life, from the moment the blood touches your lips. And then he says, Can you think of nobody who has waited many years to return to power, who has clung to life, awaiting their chance? So, of course, immediately after this, Harry thinks of Voldemort, because that is what Frenzy's hinting at. And, of course, that is who's drinking the blood. So, I know that you had some thoughts about this cursed life and how drinking the unicorn blood might actually impact Voldemort now and going forward. Yeah, so I think this is this is a really important moment in this book, but a lot of readers may forget once we get to Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, etc., that this actually happened. But when you think about the Harry Potter series, one of the criticisms that I think some people have is that Harry tends to get out of situations, especially ones involving Voldemort, through a combination of bravery, uh, timing, and just dumb luck. Um, it almost has nothing to do with skill, it really seems to just be the case that misfortune befalls Voldemort at exactly the wrong moment, and Harry manages to get away. We see this at the end of this book, with Dumbledore's timely arrival. We see this at the end of Chamber of Secrets, when Harry manages to defeat and slay a basilisk somehow as a 12-year-old, 
We see this at the end of Goblet of Fire when Harry escapes yet again. We see it almost every book. And really, you could all draw it back to this one moment when Voldemort curses himself with an incredible curse of misfortune for the rest of his life by drinking the unicorn's blood. Um, And we can see through the events of every book in the series that this must indeed be a very powerful curse for all of this bad luck to befall Voldemort at every turn. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's interesting because I always thought of that Harry getting out of situations like that as just his plot armor kind of and the fact that he needed to survive at least until the end. Um, But this is a really interesting point and it actually whether Rowling intended it or not, it actually um, can explain some of those near misses um, because we don't really get a good uh, detailed description of what this cursed life after drinking unicorn's blood is like, but that could be really Mm -hmm. what goes wrong for him. And it also draws back to another moment that I'm thinking of at the end of the series. Um, as Ferenzi says, you know, it is a monstrous thing to slay a unicorn. You have to be totally remorseless, basically, to do something like this. And in Harry's understanding of Voldemort by the end of the series, he realizes that this is a man who is not capable of remorse. This is someone who is not capable of understanding the atrocities he's committed and the pain he's inflicted on people. And he, he still tries to get Voldemort, a.k.a. Tom Riddle, to feel remorse at the very end before defeating him. But it doesn't work because he's not capable of those emotions anymore. He's, his, his soul is so shattered by all of the horcruxes that he's made, he's not capable of feeling that anymore. Which is why he's able to commit an atrocity like killing a unicorn and drinking its blood without feeling anything negative about it. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about all the ways that Voldemort you know, keeps himself alive despite basically being dead many times. Um, and all of these ways involve of course, sac- great sacrifices to his body and soul. And mm-hmm. I think that that makes sense, but it's just interesting to think of this unicorn blood example as being one of them. Yeah, and I think he may have underestimated the power of the curse or may not have believed in it, but clearly he did underestimate it because it, it defeats him at nearly every turn for the rest of the series. I'm not sure if we can really answer this question, but so we know that the creature we see is not, you know, really Voldemort in his full form. It's, of course, Quirrell with Voldemort on the back of his head, who is now sucking the blood of the unicorn. But Voldemort, in whatever form he is, he's there and he's confronted with Harry. Harry Scarburns, I mean, they're very close to each other in this moment. And Ferenzi picks him up and saves him, but. I wonder exactly, you know, was he saving him? Would Quirrell slash Voldemort have killed him in this moment? Did they, were they, would they be capable of doing it? Would they want to in this moment? It's just, I'm not sure if this was, this was a time that he really was saved from being killed or if that wouldn't have been the result. I think that's a really interesting question. And the only thing I can come up with is, Maybe it would have been really hard to get to the stone after killing Harry because then, you know, all the all the attention would have been on who killed Harry Potter, you know, how can we find the person that did this? And, you know, it would be relatively easy to figure out at that point that it was Quirrell. And then obviously it would be impossible at that point for him to be able to get to the stone. So maybe it was partially just sheer surprise at seeing Harry there. Students aren't allowed in the Forbidden Forest. There's no reason that a student would be in there. And also that it wasn't the right time. 
he can't just commit random murders on his way to getting the stone. It was draw too much attention. In this chapter, we're introduced to a new magical creature, centaurs. The centaurs are really fascinating characters, and it's really interesting to think about their moral code. So are they supposed to leave everything up to fate, as Bane says in this chapter? Um, and, you know, why is Ferenzi different? And also, how does this foreshadow his future as a divination teacher in Order of the Phoenix? I know that's a lot of questions, but those were things I was wondering. Sure. Um, well, let's start by quickly going over who centaurs are as a species. They're essentially half man, half horse. Um, they have the head and forelegs of a man and uh, hindquarters of a horse. Centuries ago, they decided they wanted to live separately from wizards, and they segregated themselves from wizards and hid in secluded areas apart from wizards. And they govern themselves, and they have their own culture, and they don't choose to be governed by wizards. And it seems to be that the prevailing line of thinking in terms of morality is don't interfere with the affairs of wizards um, and try to stay out of any conflicts, uh, except when the conflicts involve centaurs, and then you can involve yourself. Um, it also seems that most centaurs believe that they should leave things up to fate in the way that Bane was talking about. Um, Ronan seems to agree with him, and later on we see other centaurs also agree with that. But Ferenzi's position seems to be that you should try to save innocents wherever you can, even if they are wizards, and even if that means helping out wizards to do that. Yeah, and I think Ferenzi's position on helping Harry in this chapter can be explained in this quote, where he says, Do you not see that unicorn? Do you not understand why it was killed? Or have the planets not led you in on that secret? I set myself against what is lurking in this forest, Bane. Yes, with humans alongside me, if I must. So this is when he and Bane are arguing about him saving Harry. Mm -hmm. um, and he is saying, you know, I'm going to fight this because I understand what this evil is. And I think you do too, Bane. But Bane doesn't really care because it's not involving him right now. But Frenzy is saying, right. this is more important. This is too much. This is something really dangerous. And I will join up with wizards if I have to. Yeah, basically saying this affects more than just wizards. This is going to affect all of us too. Mm -hmm. And eventually we do see that although he's banished for his beliefs on this matter eventually and has to flee to Hogwarts and then becomes a teacher, all of the other centaurs, including Bane and Ronan, do eventually come around to his way of thinking and they fight alongside the human defenders at the Battle of Hogwarts at the end of the series. Hermione, already in this chapter, begins by dismissing the divination as sort of an unwieldy sort of magic. It's very imprecise, she says, but the centaurs do seem to have a lot of insight. And I was wondering what, what sort of insight you gleaned from them in this chapter. Well, they're clearly very um, attached to the stars and almost this fortune telling, I guess, it's through the stars and kind of constellations, planets. So their main quote is saying Mars is bright tonight. And it's kind of comedic at the beginning because Hagrid's trying to get real information out of them, out of Bane, and he just keeps saying Mars is bright tonight. Right. Um, yeah. So it seems funny. Um, but I wonder if this actually may mean something. So Mars is the god of war and it usually symbolizes some sort of battle or confrontation. So maybe the centaurs are actually foreshadowing not just the conflict at the end of this book and tonight, but also just conflict in general over the next few years in terms of the second war with Voldemort. Yeah, and it does seem to be that they realize 
that something evil is is going to happen because of the conversation that Frenzy and Bane have that we alluded to earlier, where where they talk about, is it right for us to intervene on this? And Frenzy argues that it is, and Bane argues that it isn't. But clearly there is something going on that they are aware of sort of vaguely. And it, it doesn't seem that they have the specifics on exactly what's going to happen or when, but that they have a sense of maybe Voldemort's return or like a conflict between Voldemort and Harry Potter because they seem to know who Harry Potter is too. And I think the difference between um, maybe Divination and Trelawney, as we'll, who we'll meet later on, and the centaurs is that Trelawney, while I think we can debate her validity later on, she gets very caught up in specific details and making specific predictions. And if you think about it, um, centaurs are maybe actually like uh, psychics today who just say things that are very general, Mm -hmm. that you can kind of relate to everything. Although, of course, they have some magical powers, but they're saying these things that are you can interpret a lot from like we are doing right now. Mm-hmm. I would I would say that to me, the the dichotomy between centaurs and people who are sort of more in Trelawney's line of thinking about divination, I would compare them more to like mystics. And uh, I would say the centaurs are like mystics and the Trelawney's are like a fortune teller. So the fortune teller is going to try to tell you what's going to happen to you this week or next month. The, the centaurs are going to just be like, the universe is telling us this, and mm-hmm. this is going to happen. And we know that because the universe is telling us that that's going to happen. But they don't really know when it's going to happen or what specifically. It's mm-hmm. just sort of vague. But it is it is deep knowledge, and it is like understanding. They seem to understand more than humans do in this matter. Let's talk about what Harry says at one point when he is telling Ron and Hermione what happened during the night. He says to them, he's kind of musing to himself, Ferenzi saved me, but he shouldn't have done so. Bane was furious. He was talking about interfering with what the planets say is going to happen. They must show Voldemort's coming back. Bane thinks Ferenzi should have let Voldemort kill me. I suppose that's written in the stars as well. Yeah, I love this passage. This is probably my favorite passage from the chapter, maybe even from the whole book, Um, because we can see through this passage that even in this very early book in the series, Rowling loves playing with the idea of prophecy, and she'll continue to do this for every book in the future. So in this passage, we can see that the stars have foretold Voldemort's return to power, but they didn't say when it would come to pass. A lot of the centaurs, including Bane, probably thought that meant this year because they knew that the stone was hidden at Hogwarts. And so they decided we're not going to intervene on this because the stars say that Voldemort's going to return this year. When really, it doesn't happen until Goblet of Fire, so they could have intervened and it wouldn't have made a difference. And then the stars also likely foretold Harry possibly being killed by Voldemort in the Forbidden Forest. And a lot of the centaurs, probably including Bane, thought that meant tonight, meaning on this very excursion. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it meant in seven years at the end of the events of Deathly Hallows, when Voldemort actually does kill Harry in the Forbidden Forest, maybe even close to where this first encounter happened. So Rowling's idea of let's play with the idea of prophecy and and let's sort of warp the reader's expectations, which is a, a big trope in fantasy novels, is to subvert expectations about what specifically and where and when the prophecy will come to pass. But it always does come to pass. Yeah, this is fascinating. I never made the connection between this outing in the Forbidden Forest and the final outing in the Forbidden Forest mm-hmm. and Harry's death there. I think it's fascinating that this is the first 
introduction, Harry and the reader gets to the forest, and then the last time he is killed there. And actually, what's something that's even more poetic is that Hagrid's the first person to bring him into the forest, and he's the person that brings him out of the forest the last time. Even more circular is the chapter titles. This one is called The Forbidden Forest. The one where Harry is killed by Voldemort is called The Forest Again. Wow. After reading this chapter this time around, I had a couple of thoughts related to the characters of Malfoy and Ron. I think it's interesting to remember that Malfoy is with them in this detention and Ron is not because he was, of course, Mm -hmm. not with them on the night that they went to release Norbert. So I think this is really cool in the fact of how it maybe affects their views about Voldemort going forward. So for Malfoy, maybe this experience in some way started the germ of the idea in his head that he actually doesn't want to be a Death Eater or follow in his father's footsteps Hmm. or commit murder. You know, he's a young boy who has been so heavily influenced by his parents Mm -hmm. and all of their, you know, horrific views. And their propaganda. And their propaganda. So he probably assumes that, you know, as most children do, that this way is the right way, whatever their parents say. And he really Mm -hmm. believes that he's going to grow up and follow in his family's footsteps. But maybe he is getting a sense that he doesn't want to. Because he's seen Voldemort do something incredibly abhorrent? Maybe. Or because he saw Voldemort be in extremely weak and vulnerable form. Or both. Hmm, maybe. Yeah, I didn't think of that as well. Like, do you think that that could have shattered some of the propaganda about Voldemort being this, like, immortal, godlike, dark lord? Well, he doesn't know that it's Voldemort, first of all. Right. But Oh, that's true. Maybe so maybe just the the fact of seeing something so something horrifying. evil. Yeah. So I think just getting the sense of this this dark magic that's clearly happening and maybe not wanting to be on this side. Hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And you said you had something about Ron's perspective as well. What was that? Yes. Yeah, so Ron is not here on this trip and Ron continues to deny Voldemort's power and reality in this book and in future books. So at the end of this chapter, um, when Harry's trying to tell them what happened, he's still begging Harry not to say the name. And maybe if he had had tension with the others, he would be less kind of in this denial of Voldemort going forward because he would have been forced to confront the reality of it. His defense mechanism of denial is still kind of working for him. He won't be forced to do this until... Voldemort's actually already back in the Goblet of Fire, and he, you know, still has a hard time confronting it. Yeah, those are really interesting insights about Ron and Malfoy. I hadn't thought of those before. So now as we're getting towards the end of the chapter, um, let's talk more about sort of the overall plot of the story. Um, Now we have sort of a revelation from Forenzi about the nature of this attempt to steal the stone and who it's for, really. And so Harry basically realizes, or thinks that he realizes, that Snape doesn't want the stone for himself to get rich or to live forever. Snape wants the stone for Voldemort so that Voldemort can return to power. And even though he's wrong about that, the end-all be-all of the situation is that now it's not about Snape, it's about Voldemort. So it's, it's about stopping Snape so that they can stop Voldemort. It's not just about stopping Snape for the sake of it. And so now Harry understands really that the person behind all of this dark stuff happening at Hogwarts is Voldemort. 
um, and that's going to affect the you know the basis for their decision making in the next couple of chapters. Yeah, and so this is really scary because Snape, well, as scary as he is, um, he's kind of been the scariest thing that they've all had to confront or think that they have to confront during this year at Hogwarts. But now they have this idea of Voldemort is actually here. Voldemort's around in some case. So Hermione, even though she understands that it's serious, she tells Harry that they shouldn't worry about the centaur's predictions because with Dumbledore around, Voldemort can't touch him. Dumbledore is the only one that Voldemort was ever scared of. Everyone knows that. So um, it's an interesting setup for the next chapter when Dumbledore is called away from Hogwarts. Right. And it's sort of like a deterrent at first. She's saying like, you know, she's urging caution. She's saying, okay, well, we don't need to fly off the handle yet because even though we know that Snape knows how to get past all the protections on the stone and that we know that Snape's trying to get it for Voldemort now, it's okay because Dumbledore's here and Dumbledore will protect the stone from Voldemort. We know that Voldemort can't get to the stone while Dumbledore's here. So they think that Snape has set up Dumbledore having to leave in the next chapter so that he can get at it. Um, And it makes it more complicated by the fact that Dumbledore returns Harry's invisibility cloak to him. So yes, yes. There's a note um, that says, just in case, on Harry's cloak that's left on his bed when he gets back that night. And Dumbledore is giving this back to him, and that almost complicates the whole thing, especially if he knew he was going to have to be called away. Well, so I think he doesn't know that he's going to be called away. Okay. It, it's like an urgent message, but mm-hmm. we'll get to that next chapter. I think what's what's important about it in this context is that this is another example of Dumbledore clearly going out of his way to give Harry the tools that he needs to behave very recklessly. Yes. In this case, returning the cloak to him gives him everything that he needs to go and confront Voldemort slash Quirrell in the mirror chamber at the end of the book, which is obviously very dangerous. And I feel like Dumbledore should have known a little better considering everything that's going on at Hogwarts. If he'd been paying attention more, he would have realized the implications of returning the cloak to Harry at this moment in time. Yeah, I almost think that if he had just left the cloak with no note, that would have been fine too, because it's just like, okay, some mysterious person left it back. But the fact that he says just in case... Right, it's almost like there's an implication that he should use it. That he should use it, and like in case of what, and what does he know, what does he think that Harry knows, and... There's just a lot of things that make it seem almost like a dare that he should use it. (laughs) And I mean, this is something we're going to continue to talk about, which is Dumbledore's attitude towards Harry and the way that he uses Harry in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. going forward. And this is a little bit disturbing, even though we as readers are glad that Harry has the cloak back. Right, of course. It's almost like he's one of Dumbledore's pawns and Dumbledore has moved him forward. Well, we made it through this very long and very good chapter, I think. So thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Forbidden Forest. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. Feel free to email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com with any questions or comments you have. And stay tuned for next time when we descend into chapter 16, Through the Trapdoor. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.